Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We talk about Theresa May's big housing speech. You ask us, is a second referendum on the cards? And why has no one heard of Momentum? So Theresa May made a major speech on housing in front of some bricks in order to illustrate her commitment to bricks. And word art. Uh, yeah, Ash Cowburn, formerly of the NS, now at the Indy, pointed out that it was exactly like some kind of year six presentation <laughs> that you would do, like where you're like, building is illustrated by bricks. Yeah, and, a PowerPoint. Yeah. She should have made the words fly in. In curls empty. Yeah, and put some um, of those clip art men in it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so obviously the presentation was a little bit, you know. Shonky. Shonky. But then so is the government's housing policy. Well. well one of the key lines from the speech, which... Um, did the rounds on social media was you are no less of a person if you rent rather than buy a house or something. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, which kind of summed up. It's one of those weird things where it's just like, what, what I always enjoy about a Theresa May speech, and I'm concerned I may have said this last week is the first, the, like the bit where she's like, here's the problem. You're like, yep, yep. Yep. You got that, it. That's true. And then it's just like, and the solution is then something like, it, it's either just like actively deranged. So it's either <laughs> like, you know, the solution to the housing crisis is to build a moon base. Um, <laughs> or it's just like a rubbish Ed Miliband era policy where they've kind of taken out the like one thing that might have made it semi-workable. So yeah. it's kind of gone from, you know, so like workers on boards, a classic example. Ed Miliband was like, I will put workers on boards. Yeah. Theresa was like, I will just, you know, ask them, hey, guys do you want to put workers on boards no biggie you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> just throwing that out there like, and then it disappears yeah and then it kind of disappears yeah. without trace there was some all right stuff in there that had already been announced on changing the national planning framework mm. because the housing crisis in britain basically has what two sources the labor government in the 40s didn't really want well, it's not even they didn't want the private sector to build. They just didn't really envisage it as something that the private sector would need to do. Yeah. So they tightened up housing regulations that had been quite loose. And they, they then the Conservative government came after, and then the Labour government came after, and the Conservative government after that. And then finally the Callaghan and Wilson governments of the 70s built a lot of state housing. Then the Thatcher government didn't want the state to build any houses. 
but didn't actually make it any easier for the private sector to build houses. Mm. And as a result, we now have this huge backlog of, of, of unbuilt homes. And you kind of ideally need to pull both those levers or one. The government doesn't really want to pull the social housing, getting the state to build lever. Yeah. They are quite reluctant to mess around with planning. So they kind of just flick at the planning lever a bit, but in a kind of like, maybe I'll press it, maybe I won't. Yeah, exactly. And just sort of like adding words here and there, like genuinely affordable housing. Yeah. And um, I can't you know, believe it's not affordable. Yeah, like, exactly. When, when it's already called, it's already supposed to be genuinely affordable housing and it's not. So I don't know how they would, without actually tearing things up, I don't know how they change that really. Yeah. Because people have always got, developers have always got around it. Yeah, and I think that, well, so the electoral problem for the government is that the number of people who are losing out from the housing market is now large enough, and thanks to Corbyn and the election that we just had, politically engaged enough mm. to make winning a majority without those those voters difficult slash impossible. However, the group of people who have lost out from the housing market is not big enough for the Conservatives to just go, okay, we're going to make a, a, a dash for those votes. Yeah. So they are kind of stuffed every which way, unless... So I strongly urge you to read uh, the Bloomberg piece that Matt Singh, founder of Number Crunch Politics, he's gone through the British Electoral Survey data, and he says yeah, the, the crucial movement of voters in the election were renters. Yeah. And I used to think the housing stuff was the most important thing in the election, but actually I increasingly don't. Okay, so why is that? Because it has become, I have noticed that it has become the sort of orthodoxy after the election. The new sort of received wisdom is the Conservatives need to do something about housing because they've, you know, they're in trouble with this particular demographic of voters. And I almost think that that's, you know, people always grasp for one thing that they can use to analyse an election. And that's the one thing that everyone can kind of agree on. Yeah. And so that was the theme of Conservative Party conference to an extent. And so many ministers were talking about it. But it is always important to question what the received wisdom Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, maybe I'm being stupid. I know that you um, disagree with yeah. me on this. And I'm not sure how, how strongly I, I hold this view. But so I was reading this piece by Matt Singh. And yeah, again, I strongly urge uh, to read it. And I just, seeing as particularly in terms of like the condition of renting, uh, I'm not actually convinced that, it feels like one of the few areas where you can't simply just go, well, Labour were bolder in 2017, and that's why this group of people who before hadn't been moved by it were. Yes, the pressure on wages made renting slightly more unpleasant than it was in 2017, but it's just quite hard, I think, to get that big vote move of renters solely through the lens of them being renters yeah uh, they were also socially liberal they were also pro-european two groups which had an even stronger so i guess yeah i mean i'm not saying i don't think the conservatives i mean the conservatives should build more houses anyway for like you know social equilibrium perspective um, but i kind of think if the conservatives were to fix the housing crisis in the next five years which obviously is a fairly big ask right but let's say they were to do it i don't think that those voters would automatically switch back to the Tories because I think Europe and the social liberal stuff is not necessarily more important, but maybe, I mean, maybe I think it is more important. I don't know. Yeah, well, I think I think there is definitely something in that argument because a cultural shift has taken place among those, those voters. So if those renters who are pro-European and socially liberal and not that keen on Theresa May and her policies 
end up buying a house this year or something, are they really going to change their vote back, back not back because they may not have voted for them in the first place, but are they really going to change to become Tory voters? I don't think that sounds likely. But I do disagree with you because I do think that you see in the demographics, as you said, Matt Singh's piece, the huge shift was in renters. And that is going to be a huge problem for the Conservatives if they can't solve that by the next election. And I think the main way that you can learn that is by talking to young Conservatives rather than other young people, because you can see, you can see their desperation wanting to remain Tory supporters, but having literally no reason to. I, I remember speaking to a young Tory candidate who ran in the last election who was saying all of my friends who believe everything, all who have all the same values as me, who have even come out leafleting with me, some of them didn't, couldn't bring themselves to even vote for Theresa May. And he was so frustrated. And that was not a cultural thing really, because he was, he was obviously he was campaigning in that election for the Conservatives. And so he'd reconciled him, himself with their policies, but it was simply because people don't have capital they don't have houses, they don't have the things that they expected to have by that age, they don't have what their parents have by that age, and they can't see that changing. And so what's the way to, to get that change is by changing your political allegiances. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing. Like, It's always very easy to, yeah, I think you've got a point, because it's always very easy to forget that in terms of winning an election, you don't necessarily need to win over a demographic. Yeah. So for example, the Labour Party doesn't need to win uh, the votes of people, you know, win among voters over 55. Yeah. It just needs to not be turned over among voters over 55. Yeah, exactly. Ditto. Yeah. The Conservatives don't need to win among renters. Um, they just do need to, uh, yeah, well, I think the other sort of interesting set of polling, which I imagine we'll discuss a bit in the second segment as well, yeah. but um, Ashcroft has done some polling of the London elections. Mm. Now, my little whine is I really wish that we were getting detailed polling of the other local elections other than the ones going on in the city, uh, of in the capital this this year. We've got two sets. One we've got because Queen Mary a University in London, which uh, has a you know really impressive commitment to its local area has paid for some polling yeah one of the slight problems is that is not true of mo many i was saying i was wasn't sure i was going with many or most so i just went with moon <laughs> money 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 universities but that is not true of all universities which means that there are other places where i think there is a more interesting contest to be had mm. council of trafford for example where we have no detailed polling because no one has bothered to do any. Uh, however, the thing I did think was really interesting is there's been a lot of media focus on the problem with that Labour may have with people who voted Leave 2015, Labour 2017. Now, I'm not saying that problem doesn't exist, but and again, this certainly is like a metropolitan-like problem that in terms of the people I know yeah. uh, or speak to regularly who are swing voters, the, the thing that's right in front of me are people who voted Cameron in 2015, Remain in 2016, Corbyn in 2017. Yeah. Yep. Um, That's certainly my view. Yeah. Yeah. But now I'm not saying that those people aren't more important than Labour leavers. However, they are as important as Labour leavers. Yeah. And there has been next to no, you know, like there's plenty of like, you know, like someone like, I went to, to racistville, <laughs> Northamptonshire, you know, Bob Riley, oh, former yeah. miner, I mean, I, said, I, I, I won't <laughs> vote for that Corbyn while he's in the customs union. But equally important are the votes of, like, you know, Tabitha Mitchell, Poshington South, you know, <laughs> like, who 
has always voted Conservative, but I'm very concerned about our passporting rights because I work in the city. Um, and, and no one has bothered to interview Tabitha. Yeah. Right? But Tabitha is just as important. Uh, the, and I actually think there is an argument, seeing as Bob Riley uh, voted for Labour in 1983, 2015, yada, there is an argument that Bob Riley is not a winnable vote yeah. for uh, the Conservatives. Uh, however, I think they probably should be a lot more worried about the fact that large chunks of Tabithas who had previously voted for them did not vote for them last time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can see it in some of those places where you say everyone went and did those reports, like in the Stoke by-election, for example, yeah. when people were actually quite put off by Jeremy Corbyn and his, well, his Brexit policy then was different from now, but they didn't see Labour as representing exactly what they wanted to, to come out of Brexit. But Labour still won there. And if anything, that kind of uncertainty among traditional Labour voters who were losing their loyalty was not voting or just disengaging or voting Labour while holding their nose or voting UKIP. But no one was switching to the Conservatives. So in a way that that's, yeah, that's less of a, that's less of a focus that they should be having. Yeah. They should be focusing on their lost remainers. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, obviously, you can critique, you can fairly critique the fact that, like, British society and culture is obsessed with home ownership. Mm. And actually, it's not a, a great aspiration and we should just make renting a lot better. Yeah. Um, I mean, the government should also be making renting a lot better, partly because that is one way that you'd get house prices down. Yeah. But people are obsessed with owning their own homes. I don't think that is going to change. I also don't think if you are the incumbent government, it is a good look to, particularly seeing as everyone in the incumbent government does own their yeah, own home. Yeah, to be like, who needs a home yeah, anyway, like, guys? It's, <laughs> it's just not a good look. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm very much still on the fence about how important I think it was. I used to think it was very important. Now I think it may be kind of almost incidental. Uh, next week, I'm probably going to think it's important again. So, yeah, so. yeah. I, th I think, well, there's going to be a lot more on the Conservatives and their youth wings or their attempt to build a youth movement. So maybe more reporting among them would see how much of an issue they think it is because they're less likely to, to own their own homes. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So as we discussed in the first half of the podcast briefly, there was a poll by Michael Ashcroft. Well, actually a poll for Michael Ashcroft. This is one of the pettiest hills I've decided I'm willing to die <laughs> die, die on. Is when people like Ashcroft polling. Oh, no, no, it's not Ashcroft polling, right? In the same way that like, you know, if I... If I go to a restaurant and bring you food, it's not Stephen Bush food. It's food <laughs> that I have bought from a restaurant. Yeah. The guy buys polling. The and guy hasn't walked around with a clipboard <laughs> yeah, around I mean, all of the London constituencies yeah, they, and, and they, ask people what they think. Of. There is nothing wrong with, like, buying polling and, I, yeah. I, you know, it, it adds a lot of interesting information to our lives. But he's not a pollster. <laughs> yeah. So this new polling by Ashcroft. 
Bought um, by Ashcroft. Bought by Ashcroft. Uh, and it was very interesting, as as his polls always are. It was of London, which we've sort of talked about a bit. There was a figure that Seb Payne of the FT was very surprised by, and I think we were both surprised by in the opposite direction. Yeah, which showed that 50%, I think, of Londoners had heard of Momentum. Yeah. And the reason why Seb Payne was surprised was that half the people in London hadn't heard of Momentum, whereas you replied to him saying that you were surprised that half had and you assume that a lot of those people are making up that they had heard of momentum well i just think like so what there are eight nine probably more like 11 people 11 million people living in in london yeah so half of them is four million people right four million people have not heard yeah of i'm momentum. asking it's just like something just like, have four million people heard of yes are very successful but but have four million people heard of um an internal group in the labor party no, 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 they just have not. No. You know, it's it, it just like f- 4 million people in London could not name the Chancellor. Yeah. Um, they probably couldn't name the Shadow Chancellor, and he is a much more important figure in the internal life of the Labour Party than Philip Hammond is in the internal life of the Conservative Party. Yeah, yeah. You know, it just, it's one of those things where the, when the second you kind of think about it, right, if you think about the number of people who... um who like read any or all well let's assume that all of the readerships of all of the publications i'm about to list are entirely separate which is obviously in of itself a a big if right people who let's say if you add together everyone in london who reads labor list everyone in london who reads the new statesman everyone in london who reads or listens to navara everyone in london who um reads uh, or listens to the spectator podcast everyone in london who reads the guardian's politics coverage um etc etc Watches well, daily politics. Yeah, that number is not four million. That number is considerably smaller than four million. I mean, there are people who read my free morning email, and you could be one of them if you're not already, who do not know yeah, who, who, who momentum, momentum are, is. right? Yeah. It, um, and we also know that like there are lots of things polling is useful for. I think actually, primarily, it's useful for measuring change. But we so kind of we think. If they did this poll next year and 65% of people said they'd heard of Momentum, I would at that point go like, okay, more people have heard of Momentum than had last year. But we know that whenever you say like, have you heard of someone? I mean, we know that just from life, right? Someone (laughs) says like, yeah, if I was like, oh, Anusha, I'm listening to this great band. They're called Wimbledon Common. Um, (laughs) What do you think of them, right? You'd probably go, oh, yeah, they're all right. Yeah, yeah. I, no, no, yeah, no, no. There is such a temptation to pretend that maybe you've watched something that people are talking about or you've listened to music. It's a bit like, I mean, you were saying when we were planning this podcast that there's a poll, is it IBM? I don't yeah. know which one you're uh, talking about, um, who put on in all of their polling of name recognition, they put a name that isn't actually someone who's in politics. Yeah, there's just like a, a guy who works or used to work at ICM, and I always forget his name, um, who they put on you know kind of so just like well how do you think and you know like philip hammond boris johnson jim bob charlie or whatever this guy's <laughs> name is and you always get a, a decentish chunk of, of people uh, and an even larger chunk of men being like yep <laughs> jim bob charlie i know who he, he is there's an excellent chapter in sex lies in the ballot box about the budget control act right where basically you just ask people what do you think of the budget control act <laughs> and again a large chunk of people will go I've heard of it. My favourite thing about it, <laughs> and I don't this, like it. Yeah, it's even like <laughs> I have big opinions on this yeah, thing that doesn't exist. Like... It's a bit like there. There used to be these spoof videos at London Fashion Week where these people would um, go up to people going in and out of the shows and with a picture and say, "Oh, what do you think of this?" 
like bogus collection. They just make up a name like Mushy Mushy or something. And then the people would nine times out of 10 have big opinions about the current line and the history of the line and look really looking forward to seeing the show. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think it's interesting, partly for the kind of human psychology reasons we've discussed already. But I also think one of the f- the many fascinating things that the Conservatives have done since the election is focus on these really high information yeah. campaigns against the Labour Party. Like, like, yeah, so momentum is actually quite complicated, even for people who follow politics to understand. It's not really an internal body of the Labour Party. It's a campaign network that grew out of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership campaign, which is separate from the Labour Party apparatus. And now it campaigns for Labour and for Labour's campaigns and also campaigns internally within also campaigns against one another and it's just it's complicated and and it requires a lot of explaining so and so the fact that the Conservatives have based a lot of their attacks on Labour on the activities of momentum particularly in some London councils is just I, I mean (laughs) <laughs> and the fact that 50% of Londoners won't have heard of Momentum. Well, I think, it's, I think so least. 50% of Londoners are yeah. being honest about it. Yeah. My kind of rule of thumb with any, like, have you heard of X poll is just a half, just just as a, yeah, a, a half, rule okay. of so thumb. Okay, so let's say 20. Just 25. But that's generous, <laughs> like, probably. Yeah, yeah, even then I think that's probably too many. Um, but, yeah, it's just like... Shows how much hard yeah. work it's going to be for the Conservatives to try and make these lines cut through. Yeah, The I, reason why some commentators like Seb might have been surprised that so few people have heard of Momentum in the capital is because the Evening Standard has really made a big thing about reporting on the um, sort of Momentum councillor rows that have been happening in councils like Haringey. And they've tried to make a big thing of it by saying, oh, you know, Trotskyites are taking over your local authorities. Um, so maybe that might suggest that more people might have heard of them than otherwise would have. Yeah, but I think you know it, it's really easy to forget, particularly when you are in journalism, and obviously as an industry, we love nothing more than talking about ourselves. Mm. But it's really easy to forget that you know I could not tell you what I am not certain I could with confidence tell you what the front cover of the NS was every week till the end of this year. I, I know I would get there eventually, but I I could not. I would not, you know, do it live. Yeah. Um, let alone what's on the front of the standard. Most people, you know, you, I see it every every day on my way way out of work. Yeah. Most people, you know, read the standard back. You know, they'll read it back to front or yeah, they'll, read or it they'll from go the, to the London, the middle, pages. or they'll go to the London. Yeah. yeah. Like, and people are just like, oh, I mean, this is the thing when people say, oh, it's on the front page of the standard every um, every day. I just thought, is it? I mean. I mean, partly because I kind of stopped reading the standard because Arsenal have been doing so badly. Um, <laughs> I tend to go into this news blackout whenever Arsenal <laughs> are playing badly. Like, literally, the whole of 2009, no idea what happened in world <laughs> affairs. Just no idea. Um, I just think, yeah, it does show what a big challenge they're going to have and how really your campaign needs to focus on things people know and care about, i.e. health, housing, who the next prime minister is going to be, yeah. condition of the public services, whether they're not going to be safe. Now, the problem for the Conservatives isn't the only one of those, and the economy, the only two of those where they have leads are the economy. We are probably overdue a recession, and this Trump trade war stuff probably makes that more likely. Yeah. And on the leadership, they have an advantage, but there is no guarantee that Labour won't, 
either it won't improve then Jeremy Corbyn will not find a way to improve his ratings still further right he improved them a great deal during the campaign yeah. he may be able to improve them a great deal again yeah it just kind of feels like focusing on momentum is just I think it's, well, it's virtue signaling, weirdly, yeah, right? Yeah, that's true. It's It really is. Um, because actually most of the things that Momentum do aren't particularly sinister and are quite boring and to do with internal party manoeuvring. Yeah, and also I just think like... And, and obviously they've had a very successful campaign and their social media strategy has been really helpful for Labour electorally. But that is a threat to the Conservatives electorally. It's not a threat to people who are voting so yeah. it's very difficult to conjure up this sort of monstrous i also just think like movement we 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 know and this has actually always been the case right then making the moral case against mm. another political party just never really gets you anywhere it's just i think a way for partisans to feel better about themselves yeah. well it reminds me a bit of how labor used to sometimes make that mistake um remember the crew and nantwich by-election guys yeah. how cool am i um but they the labor activists locally chased the um tory candidate edward timpson around in, in top hats and sort of made fun of him for campaigning in a posh car which was actually made in a factory nearby and they they absolutely wrecked their chances in what was quite a close by-election because they were trying to make this sort of, I, I suppose they'd call it a moral argument against the class of the candidate that they were running against. And that didn't wash. No, it just didn't work. Current which is Labour again now. Yeah, it's it? Labour again now, so that didn't matter. <laughs> and now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Indeed we do. So this one's our questions from Facebook, where you can watch us plan what we're going to discuss in the podcast. And also, there's, believe it or not, it is planned. It is planned. Yeah, <laughs> it takes effort to look this unprofessional. Um, but we also have, you know, bits where we kind of talk about like the art of journalism, what you do when it turns out and you have no idea who lunch with contact <laughs> is, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's good fun. You should you know, leave a comment on underneath there and we will try and ask it or leave a comment on my Facebook page and ditto, we will eventually get to all of them or with some of them, I will write longer pieces about them. Um, but the question that we have this week is, is there any possibility of a second referendum on EU membership? Now, I like this question because it's often something that Remainers talk about. We need a second referendum. And then Nigel Farage goes on some kind of morning show and says, actually, God damn it, let's have a second referendum. Show these, you know, snobs what we've got. And, and actually, it's not very realistic that there's going to be a second referendum in this parliament, at least. That's mainly because I don't think there's any... I mean, I don't know if you, you agree, but there's no there's no majority in the House of Commons to call for a second vote now. So I don't think that can happen. <laughs> really, I think that's the main reason. They always say the main caveat is, you know, if the public will changes, then maybe we'll look into it. But how are they going to test that? Yeah. How is there time to do that? So I'm semi-inclined to agree. So I think, yeah, the, the interesting kind of question about the question is it sort of depends on what you mean by a yeah. second referendum. I, I think it is 100% certain that there will be a, another referendum on on our relationship with the European Union. Um, you know, the United Kingdom's relationship with the rest of Europe has been this running sore in British politics basically since 1945 yeah. at the absolute latest. It, that question is not going to go away, particularly because in terms of the demographic and cultural trends that make me more pro-European, the Brexiteers have done so little to... Um, win over the next generation 
than our just as our European membership became politically untenable for the Conservative Party for it not to offer a referendum because of its internal dynamics, I think we will very rapidly have a situation where it becomes untenable not to have a referendum on going back in. Yeah. I then think regardless of the outcome of that referendum, we will then have another one and probably <laughs> another one. And um, yeah, it kind of comes back to our repeated refrain on this podcast about this idea of Brexit being finished. Our, yes. Our, yes. You know, unless the continent of Europe sinks into the sea, in which case we would have bigger problems, the question of how we relate to the European Union uh, is not going to go away. Yeah, no, I definitely agree the subject will return um, and return. Um, and leave and leave. <laughs> uh, however, I'm the one reason why I'm starting to kind of go. Hmm, maybe there could be a second referendum. Mm. Is some conservatives, you know, including sort of ministers, are starting to go. Okay, so we've got this problem, and including some sort of diehard leavers, right? They basically have accepted that the government has boxed itself into this weird um, no-win scenario, right? Because there are some people, obviously Boris Johnson kind of said it publicly, who are going, "Well, look, to get the Brexit, we want." there's going to be a tougher border and we yeah. just need to accept that. Yeah, which is the most realistic thing yeah, I've heard I, one of those main levers say. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a dangerous idea to have a border infrastructure, but as you say, like at least it's... I can't believe I got to a point where I'm going like, at least you're taking a dangerous idea in the real world. But I, <laughs> but I mean, that's what it. Yeah. I mean, the one thing, the one thing this government is great at is lowering the bar. Yeah. You know, just like <laughs> yeah. just not to a stage where it's like, ah, oh, unhinged but reality based <laughs> yeah, progress. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, the point they sort of make is well. It's in the Labour Party's interest, I think, to vote against the deal when the deal is in the... Because the one thing that I think will unite everyone in the Labour Party, whether or not you are a kind of like Blairite, my greatest regret is we're not in the Eurozone, or like a, a like Kelvin Hopkins style, Tony Benn, let's get out of this capitalist club yesterday. Yeah, yeah. I think the one thing that, that will unite the whole of the parliamentary party and the whole of the Labour movement will be that the deal is not good enough. Mm -hmm. It will either not be sufficiently Brexity or it will not have a high enough standard of access. And it's in Labour's political interest to vote against it because that way, if you're a Labour person campaigning in a Levy area, you can go, yeah, that deal was gave too much money to the EU, blah, was rubbish, I hate it too. And if you're a sort of Labour candidate in, you know, Kensington or Manchester Central yeah. or wherever or Canterbury, you can go, yeah, I hated it. That's why I voted it down, right? Voting it down is just, is in Labour's interests. Yeah, and, and opposing the government is, is, people expect them to do that. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so the accusation of sort of betraying Brexit won't really stick, I don't think, if yeah. you vote it down. And then the point sort of then people... Uh, will make is they go, well, we also know that about 30 of our lot will probably vote against the deal because it will not be Brexity enough. Mm. The Lib Dems will vote against it because although Vince Cable doesn't seem to be that committed to their European policy uh, privately, he's decided for various reasons he's sort of stuck to it. So so they'll vote it down. Um, and at that point, you just think, well, what is the... what? And so the, the question I have is, what is the deal that can pass the commons and do we then have like a referendum on the deal which yeah. i think is quite a terrifying prospect because yeah because so i do agree with you on that on how that that vote could play out but i don't think that a second referendum would be the natural outcome of of the deal being voted down because like you say going back to the country and i know i know that second referendum can mean so many things but for example the lib dem manifesto so failed that party in the election because they were campaigning 
I think, because in some areas where that people were not supportive of, of staying in the EU, like in Cornwall, just the term second referendum on their leaflets made people think they want a rerun of that vote. They didn't. They wanted to vote on the final deal by the public, which is what we're talking about now. But I just think that perception would put most politicians off because it looks like they're, they're ignoring democracy and they want to, to do a rerun of the whole thing, even though that's not necessarily what, yeah. what they'd be doing. I mean, I also think like it is not at all clear from a legal perspective what happens if the final deal is voted down. Yeah. The, the timetable of Article 50 does not leave a lot of wriggle room. I actually find the prospect of a referendum on the deal deeply worrying, right? Because... I do think this is a bigger structural problem a lot of pro-Europeans in Parliament have. A lot of them have either been ministers for most of their parliamentary careers or they were minister- haven't been on the backbenches for you know 30 years. And a lot of the stuff they've done kind of assumes at the end the executive will set a question that allows them to vote in the way they want, yeah. right? So like this call for a meaningful vote. Well, Theresa May's deal or crashing out without a deal is a meaningful choice. It's not, I think, a particularly free meaningful choice because crashing out with a out deal is so bad. Yeah. But, yeah, I think there's a, a non-trivial and quite scary possibility that we might have a second referendum, which is, do you take this deal? Do you have no deal? And then because right. the government's been wandering around going, no deal is better than a bad deal, what happens if people just vote for... No deal. For no deal. Yeah. That is terrifying. I didn't even think about it like that because when most Remainers are calling for a second referendum, they say they want the sort of yes vote to be the deal that the, the government's come up with and the no vote to be no, let's not leave the European Union, which is utterly ridiculous. Well, the thing is, why would the government ever offer yeah, exactly. that? Right? Like, <laughs> I, I just can't believe that it, um, intelligent yeah. people are suggesting that that should, should, be, um, should be on the ballot paper. So it would be down to Theresa May, basically, then. If, if her deal is voted down in Parliament, it would be up to her to say... It would be up to her to make the decision to say we're, we're going to have a second referendum on the deal. Well, the argument lots of Conservatives make is that she would not be able to survive that vote yeah. and a new leader would emerge and that new leader would then enter into negotiations with the EU. But there literally isn't... There's no time. Time? <laughs> you know, you're that, that's kind of the point of the Article 50 vote. I, I think... And the other interesting sort of referendum question, right, is... Yeah, the the transition period is not going to end by 2020, right? There will not be a deal reached at that point. Yeah. Is the Conservative Party going to have another eruption about whether or not transition is going to go on forever when they have to extend it? And the crucial thing is every time the Conservative Party has an eruption, Theresa May has to move. So a lot of people um, have been quite critical of her most recent speech, which I think is both fair but kind of misses the point in the... In the, in the same way that, you know, it's like people going like, but why doesn't Corbyn just stand up and go, well, I can't stand half of these people. It's well, because he has to like present this idea of himself as leading a United, United party, party that's ready to govern. Yeah, yeah. Um, so ditto, Theresa May can't just stand up and go, look, guys, you are kidding yourselves if you think that we can have like this entirely open border every time she does a speech she kind of gradually moves closer towards reality yeah the problem is every time the conservative party has an eruption she moves back a bit yeah which is why the talks are, pro- are progressing so slowly um so i think the more interesting question is though let's say it's 2023 well i don't think we will have left the i think we'll stop being a voting member yeah uh, but i don't think we'll have left the eu by the next election right so at that point Will someone just go like, maybe we should just transition forever? Maybe we should transition back? And I think that 
is a more uh, likely question than a second referendum. You've been listening to the New Station podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Anusha Kellyan. It's recorded by India Borg, produced by Caroline Crampton. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you've been enjoying the New Station podcast and would like a more artsy listening experience, can I recommend the back half? Our podcast of high culture, low culture films, or seriously, where they take pop culture, you guessed it, seriously. <laughs> <laughs>